Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Charlie Leslie, and he'll be answering your questions on fly fishing southern Belize. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Charlie a question, just go to our homepage and askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your questions. We'll receive your questions immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just look in the right-hand column of any of our web pages, and you'll see a form to sign up. Just fill in your name and email address, and then we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share our podcast. And when you do, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing as well as FlyFishing. In fact, if you have a moment, do it right now and uh, spread the good word. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing businesses ask about fly fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Charlie Leslie about fly fishing southern Belize. Douglas Outdoors is a manufacturer of premium quality fly rods, raising the expectations that anglers should expect in componentry, design, engineering, craftsmanship, and in turn performance. Led by head rod designer Fred Contui, Douglas has achieved award-winning rods featuring eye-opening strength to weight ratios and dialed-in technique-specific actions and tapers that cater to a host of different species. Douglas Outdoors has a truly deep lineup of rods ranging from 12 weights for monster tarpon to two weights for tiny brook trout and everything in between. Check them out at douglasoutdoors.com. That's douglasoutdoors.com. Before we introduce Charlie, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage, which is at askaboutflyfishing.com, and look for the link under Charlie's section that says register for the free drawing. Click on that link, fill out the forms, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a book of your choice from Stackpole Books. And here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. The question is going to be about something that Charlie and I talk about during the show. So um, take good notes, pay attention. And uh, when the time comes, submit your answer along with your name and location in the text box on our homepage. It's the same text box that you can ask questions in during the show. So as I said, take good notes and pay attention and uh, type fast when the time comes and maybe you'll win a book from Stackpole Books. Our guest tonight is Charlie Leslie. Charlie is from the village of Placencia in Stan Creek District of Belize. Guiding by age 19, he has over 50 years of experience fishing the waters of Belize and is considered one of the most knowledgeable and respected guides in the country. Charlie was introduced to fly fishing in the 70s by Lefty Cray and is now a master of casting and fly presentation to permit, tarpon, and bonefish. Charlie's approach to fishing is based on the tides, weather, migratory patterns, 
and other conditions to ensure that his clients have the best opportunities to land the fish of a lifetime. Charlie recognizes that sport fishing and ecotourism are key to Belize's future, and as such, uh, he is a responsible steward of the environment and the fishery. Charlie, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Hello. Hello. Okay, we got gotcha. you. Okay. Yeah. So I'm here. Welcome. I'm here. <laughs> okay. Welcome. <Yeah>. Thank you. <laughs> we got Charlie from Belize. Uh, he's down there now, basking in his 56 degree weather, um, which is cold for Belize. He says, "I'm up here, and I'm in a snowstorm in Colorado." So. Uh, uh, couldn't be uh, different uh, environments, that's for sure, today. So, But you're a little warmer than I am, Charlie, so that's good. That's for sure. That's for sure. Uh, thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, no, uh, glad to have you. So um, before we get started on some of the uh, questions, I wanted to have you, you know, we talked just now about Lefty Cray. You're learning fly fishing from Lefty Cray. You've been around since this whole industry started in Belize, and can you give us a little background about how you got started and to where you are today, um, you know, and fill in the details that we didn't cover in your in your introduction. Yeah, I uh, I started working with um, a company by the name of Keller's Caribbean Sports, and they up in the, the eight miles up the Belize River, and um, that's where I met uh, Lefty, and. Um, Lefty got us started in in the in the fly fishing, and um, he actually presented us with a fly rod, which I didn't know what the hell to do with it. But um, he said, uh, "You gotta you gotta learn." So that's where I started, and um, I ended up uh, meeting uh, Leon Chandler, who was the the president of Cortland Line Company at the time, and um, I started doing some fly fishing with him, some guiding, etc. And then I met the great Mel Krieger, who taught me the essence of fly fishing. And um, I worked for Mel for quite a while in the Placentia area after I left Caribbean sports. And um, I then branched off to started my own guiding business out of Placentia. Ah. Um, that was in the 90s, the early 90s. and the late 90s, I I built uh, Tarpon Key, and, and that's where I was for the past, for 20 years, thereabout. And now I am doing uh, independent fly fishing operation here out of Placentia. Right. And that's Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing. For those of you that want to check it out, it's charlieleslieflyfishing.com. Yes. And, um, and you right. can see yeah, what, what Charlie's doing there. Um, so good, good. So you go back to when it all started. And, um, but even before that, wasn't your dad a fisherman? Was, was he a commercial fisherman or something yes. like that? Yeah, that's, of course. My, we grew up in fishing. My dad was a commercial fisherman. And um, uh, we learned a lot of uh, fishing technique from him in the commercial region. And um, I transformed that um, that knowledge in with my knowledge of you know commercial fishing and 
went into uh, sport fishing and used my knowledge of commercial fishing and and ended up uh, in sport fishing. So I wasn't a rookie in in fishing at my early start of um, guiding. I I was a good boater. I would be able to handle a boat very well. So I ended up uh, got into the fly fishing. I would say back in the early 70s thereabout. Wow. Yeah. And um, until now, I have met, uh, you know, a whole lot of great, great people in the fly fishing world, which I enjoyed very much. Yeah, yeah. Well, you live in a beautiful part of the world, that's for sure, and uh, nothing like being out on the water down there in southern Belize. Uh, let's yes, let's talk about southern Belize. Do you consider... Southern Belize, kind of from Hopkins South to Punta Gorda, would you say? Um, or yeah, I would consider Southern Belize from Tobacco Key, Dangriga area, southwards. Okay, a little um, further north than yeah, what I was that, talking. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes, sir. That's for sure. Okay, and all the way down to to Punta Gorda. Um, it seems like Gorda. Uh, yeah, it seems like a long way on the map, but it's really not that far. Um, no, the, it's not that far. Yeah, because the whole country is how long? Uh, how many miles long is the country? Well, from from point to point is approximately 160. 160 miles, yeah. So we're dealing right. with half uh -huh. of that, yeah. In fact, you can yeah. go out in um, from Placencia. Um, uh, so we've got, uh, if you're looking at a map, folks are trying to figure out where we're talking about there's Dangriga, there's Hopkins, then there's Placencia, and then the next major mm -hmm. town is uh, Punta Gorda below that. But you can come out of Placencia and be, I mean, it's a long haul for a day, but you can go by boat down to, basically down to close to Punta Gorda to, to fish during the day, right? I mean, you wouldn't normally do that. Oh, but yes, it's, it's possible. Yeah. Right. It's not just a, a direct run. You fish your way down there. And right. then you then you do your direct run on the way back. So if you leave early from Placentia, uh, you could fish your way all the way down to Port Honduras and make that run back in the evening through the through yeah. the backwaters. And um, it's a ways, but you're getting your fishing. You're getting a good five six hours of fishing. Now there's literally hundreds of keys out there on the on the barrier reef, right? Oh, of course there's. I would say from Dangriga South, we got close to 200 keys. 200 from keys. Gorda, no? from, yeah, yeah. And basically, each one of those keys offers a potential fly fishing opportunity, right? Whether it be for... Oh, of course. Yeah. Yes, of course. Your great potential, permit fishing, bonefish would... Uh, uh, well, tarpon would be secondary and bonefish would be the third on the list. But there is uh, quite a bit of bonefish around those keys. Um, there's not many open flats for bonefish until you hit the Sapadillo Range, which is the last range of keys um, heading south. And um, mostly you would find uh, bonefish around those keys and permit as well. So they, they do offer great fishing there. Yeah, and we'll talk about that. I'm going to, folks, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of run through the four major fish that uh, 
Charlie likes to take his clients to fish for, um, you know, bonefish, snook, tarpon, and, uh, you know, the ultimate prize permit. Uh, so we'll, we'll get yes, into the sir. details on each one of those as we uh, move through the evening here. Mm -hmm. um, now, I'm going to get out of the way some of these just general questions people have that maybe haven't been to Belize. One, what's the primary language spoken down there? Um, I would say English, um, Roger. They, you know, we speak our Creole, which is broken English, but um, English is the language that the country speaks. Right, right. So it's very easy for mm -hmm. folks to travel there and navigate through the country, you know, verbally, right? I mean, for, yes, for English-speaking people, I should say, for English-speaking people. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you'll, yeah. Have a, you'll find a lot of people speak Spanish, Garifuna, Maya, uh, Creole, but they all speak English as well because that's what they yeah. taught in school. No? Yeah, Yeah. I think the I think it was only once, and Julie and I were on a back road up, you know, um, oh, you know, by, um, oh, I'm trying to remember the, the name, but anyway, we're way back kind of in the bush, and I stopped to ask directions, and the guy could only speak Spanish. But that was the only one time that I ever, you know, could could not speak English with someone when I was down there. But yeah, he, 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 he was really old, too. <laughs> you know, he's probably about 90 years old. Right. He, uh, yeah. He probably just arrived in the country from Guatemala or Honduras or Salvador or so. Um uh, when you see that, that means they they are newcomers, you know. They when they can't speak any Creole or English at all. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, mm -hmm. And to get to where you are, I mean, most flights come into Belize City. Well, all flights internationally yes. come into Belize City. Yeah. Right, and you can fly from Belize City direct into Presencia through Maya Air or Tropic Air. Either of them um, fly directly to Placentia. And that's a fun ride, by the way, folks. It's uh, small. What do those hold, like about 14 people or 12 or those? Yeah, they are they 15 seaters. 15 seaters. Uh, yeah. 15 seater yeah. caravans, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, so you get a real view of the country and the coast as you fly down. It's really, it's really quite exciting. And uh, yeah, it's a cool, a it's a cool run. Yeah, yeah. So um, Doug McLean in uh, Calgary, Alberta, Canada, would probably like to get out of the cold and come down. <laughs> but he's, uh, he's asking about, you know, how, and this is, you know, the big elephant in the room nowadays, you know, how is COVID mm -hmm. impacting fly fishing in Belize? So can you tell us where you guys are with that right now? Well, the beginning of this uh, COVID situation, we were pretty much locked down. And... Um, we have seen a spike, you know, about three months ago. Um, and that was basically caused from being near to an election, election year. And there was a lot of uh, congregation and campaigning and, you know, all that kind of stuff was going on. So right after the election, it spiked in November. But now it went down approximately, I would say, about 60% drop in positive cases. Um, the, we have a new government, by the way, and, and they brought in um, very good protocols to control the spread of COVID. At this present time, currently, 
we're having about a 95.5% uh, recovery. We only had little over 300 deaths over the whole period when the COVID starts until now. The, you would find the new protocol will be very, very easy coming in and, and leaving the country. Um, I'm not sure if they have already enforced the, the protocol in the U.S., going back into the U.S., but if you're in the Placentia area and your trip is done, you can get your exit test right there in Placentia, and by the time you fly to the international airport, your results will be there waiting for you. And mm -hmm. if, you, if you test positive, then it's a quarantine situation. If you don't, you get on the plane, fly back home, and um, I'm not sure about the protocol there in the United States, but um, I understand that they might enforce that you do a 10-day quarantine on your way back, which I don't think it's necessary if you test negative. Right. So that's right. where we at and, and the COVID. But okay. it affected um, tourism generally, not only in the fly fishing world. Generally, people were not right. traveling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah now, um, Belize has instituted a, um, a whole program called the Gold Standard, which you are yeah. have qualified for with your guiding service and in the hotels right. and lodges that you work with, and. Right. Um, Tell them real briefly what that is as far as a safety thing for, you know, tourists coming down. Well, the gold standard is basically to have in place um, to be able to to control your guests to a point where they, they sanitize in and out. Mm -hmm. They sanitize your room. They sanitize the restaurants, they sanitize the rails. Um, everything have to be in place for sanitization. And if you book a tour from the hotel where you're staying, that hotel have to have the gold standard in place so that they can introduce that gold standard to the, to the guest that is there. And it's a protocol that you have to follow. Mm -hmm. um, and you have been trained or you have been um, introduced to all the protocols from the Belize Tourist Board that you have to be living up to. So if you book a tour out of the hotel itself, you are responsible to see that who is taking that tour is also uh, Gold certified, so that they practice the same protocol on their car, their van, their boat, etc., etc. And you have to have all of this in place to control that. So it's all about, you know, wearing your mask, sanitizing your hand, and at the hotel they sanitize the restaurant. All of that have to be in place. Right, right. So that's where the gold standard comes in. Okay. Okay. Uh, another question, and this comes up quite regularly when we're talking about, you know, Central America, is, you know, how safe is Belize for Americans to, to travel and, and fish down there? Well, 
in our area, I would say it's it's pretty safe. You you need to fly completely over Belize City, and you're safe. Belize City so, is definitely not a place for to, for, to hang um, out. <laughs> to hang out. Yeah. <laughs> in other words. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that it's been that way for years, right? You know, you just you fly into the airport and you fly right back out, or you get a car and drive out, and uh, um, yeah, and, and and you get to where you need to be, and and the rest of the country is is pretty darn safe, from what I've found too. Right. Yeah. So that's the practical thing to do, and um, the airport is uh, eight miles or so out of the city, so um, yeah, you wouldn't have to go in there to to get all that done. Yeah, yeah. We've had a couple questions, Charlie, come in here uh, on the internet. One from Fran in uh, Massachusetts, and one from uh, John Kerwin in, in Fort Collins, Colorado. They're both asking, what's the difference between fly fishing in northern Belize and southern Belize? And you originally guided up in northern Belize, so you know that area too, right? Right. Yes, sir. What are the of course. What are the major differences? Okay, the the major differences in fishing northern Belize that you fish a lot of shallower flats uh, area and um, you know like cuts in the reef, uh, cuts in the flats for tarpon etc etc. They don't have um, the type of hard grassy flats that we have down in the south. They, they have a lot of mud flats and um, the, I would say in the south, what we call southern Belize, you are dealing with ocean flats. You are dealing with uh, pancake flats. Uh, that's a common word for, for these little flats out in the, in the deep water, which is surrounded by very deep water from 40 to 60 to 70 to 80 feet of water just around these flats. So northern Belize is basically you're fishing mud flats. If you're closer to the reef, you start fishing some harder flats. If you're fishing on the reef itself, it's hard bottom. Um, and the, the area is not as big as southern Belize. Okay, okay. Yeah, and when you talk about pancake flats, if you've not ever experienced that, it was pretty amazing when I was fishing with Charlie down there. He's running that boat, and we're out over blue water, and it's deeper, and I'll get out, and then all of a sudden, boom, up comes this pancake flat, and it's uh, knee-deep. <laughs> and uh, you're out waiting the flat, mm -hmm. and then you get in the boat, and you go to the next one. And, and Charlie has a internal uh, homing device, I guess, an internal GPS, because <laughs> he knows where all these darn pancake flats are out there, and, uh, you know, the rest of us wouldn't have a clue, but uh, but he just goes right to them, and it's really kind of a cool experience to be fishing those flats, you know, just that just kind of pop up out of the water, yeah. So um, we had Steve in Virginia. He's asking if He's got a non-outdoorsy, non-fishing wife, and he's talking about going down to Belize on vacation. He says, is there a nice resort close by where they could stay and he could take advantage of fly fishing in southern Belize um, and she could enjoy the, the beach or the sun? Oh, yes. I, um, I would recommend the Turtle Inn. 
which is a Coppola-owned, Francis Ford Coppola-owned hotel there. Um, it's a really, really nice uh, five-star, I would say, hotel, beautiful restaurant, beautiful beach, uh, beautiful setting, for that matter. And it's easier to fish from there. If somebody staying there want to fish, you can get picked up from the lagoon side and do some lagoon fishing for snook if you want to do that. Or you can go out to to the flats and the the lagoons in the Keys, fish for tarpon, and come back and do an evening fishing in the lagoon for for um, snook, etc. And um, I am sure that his wife would love uh, the some of Coppola's uh, um, beautiful wine that they have there. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a benefit. So, um, Staying with with one of his properties, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, sir. And um, you know they, they they do have a, a small island if you if like the wife want to go just for a day to do a little snorkeling and so on and so forth. They have a a small island nearby which is about eight miles offshore. Right, and in the Placencia, you've got a lot of eco tourism going on there where you can do uh, mainland tours as well up into the rainforest and well, all that kind of stuff too yes so. yes of course you can do the um, you can do the monkey river tour which is a eco tour um, you can always also goes to the Mayan ruin down in the southern part of the country in the Punta Gorda area namely Punit and the Lubantun and all that then right. you can also go to the Jaguar Reserve for a good rainforest tour uh, birding, uh, etc. You can you can do there. So yeah, there's enough to do for a week. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Charlie, we're going to take a little quick break, and uh, we'll be right back, and we'll continue talking and getting into the fishing in Belize here uh, next. So uh, hold tight, and I'll be right back. Watermaster okay. is dedicated to providing their customers with the highest quality inflatables on the market, as well as unbeatable customer service and product support. They are best known for their signature products, the Watermaster Grizzly and Kodiak rafts. These rafts are lightweight, compact, durable, versatile, and safe. The Watermaster rafts are everything your personal watercraft should be. They have been used by anglers and hunters all over the world for over 15 years, including Dave Whitlock, one of fly fishing's greatest innovators. Dave said, with my Watermaster, I can enjoy more fishing per hour than any other method I have ever tried. After two and a half years of testing 15 models of kickboats, I'm convinced that the Watermaster is the ultimate personal flotation craft for warm and cold water fly fishing. Visit Watermaster today and take a look at the ultimate personal flotation craft. Go to BigSkyInflatables.com. Again, that's BigSkyInflatables.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Charlie Leslie about fly fishing Southern Belize. If you'd like to ask Charlie a question, just go to our homepage at AskAboutFlyFishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question uh, immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as we can on the show tonight. Okay, uh, let's see here. What we got? I think what we got kind of... Um, okay, another question came in, uh, Carol from Kerrville. Charlie, she's asking, um, is there more fishing pressure in southern Belize or northern Belize? More fishing pressure is in northern Belize for a 
the reason for it is that they don't have the amount of fishing area that um, that we have in southern Belize. Besides, it's a more popular fishing destination than southern Belize at this point. And it's got uh, where where most of the tourists that are whether they're fishing or not, tend to go is to Ambergris Key in San Pedro, right? That, Which is exactly in northern right. Belize. Yeah. So that's exactly where the bulk right. of mm -hmm. the, the tourists are, and then they've got all kinds of day trips going out of there, which makes the, the yeah. pressure a little bit more intense up there. Right. Yeah. That's the number one the number one destination for, for tourists in Belize. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. Um, John Kerwin, Colorado, is asking, um, are there really seasons in Belize? And if so, you know, what time of year is the, the best time to come down to Belize to fish? And, and that will depend on species you're after, too, I would expect, right? Yeah. Um, we look at um, March to June as prime time. Um, phasing down to July and August would be our last... Um, two months of basically decent fishing. September, October can be very, very um, squally, windy, etc. But you, you do get some very good days. But it's for the it's for the guy who decide to rough it out and they they sometimes get in some really good days of fishing in, in those two months. Mm -hmm. October, I would rule out. November, I, I would start again. Um, December, we start getting the cold fronts. And that's the time when we fish basically the mainland. You know, um, the mainland then with the cold, with the northerly wind, it's pretty calm and light wind along the mainland. So that's when we do fishing there for snow tarpon permit as well um, that time of year. But uh, basically, those are the months, March to June. Those are the hot months. Right, right. And uh, and then, like, September and October, you said, you know, that's the end of hurricane season, right? So you're contending with... That's the beginning of the hurricane season. Beginning, okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So those two months are right. really dicey, yeah, um, for sure. Yeah. 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 Um, Jim in Ohio says, uh, what important skills should an angler have when looking to book a guide trip down in Belize? He says, I always feel intimidated with looking, when looking at uh, trying something new. And I'll follow up with the question because I think this is probably part of your answer, but uh, Bob in Florida asks, what's the secret to casting in the wind? So that might be a hint, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I, can, um, I can answer um, a little bit of that. Um, I will answer your first question. I would look at the situation of coming to try something new is to getting some scarce practicing time. From I would grade a, a caster from 1 to 10. He has to be doing a 6 to be able to, to get out on the flats and um, and cast decent enough to catch, you know, bonefish and permit, and more so uh, tarpon. Um, casting in the, in the wind, 
needs a lot of practice. Um, as the birds, a seabird would fly low on top of the water because there's less wind resistance, you know, a foot or so above the surface of the water. So presenting your cast in the wind, your back cast should be higher than normal, and your forward cast should be lower than normal, pushing your line up underneath that wind as best you can. And that's, that takes a while to pick up that technique and to, to be able to, to make that cast, because that cast has to well, be well coordinated with your back cast and your forward cast and when to let go, you know? But it's, mm -hmm. not, it's not difficult if you put your back into it and want to learn it, it can be done. Well, that's what um, I know when I was down there and we were talking, I think one of the best investments, if you've not fished in salt water before like that, is to go out and practice with the gear that you have and practice when there's, a, there's some wind. And maybe get a tune-up yep. with some casting lessons uh, with the heavier gear mm -hmm. that you're going to be using down there. Because if you're used to throwing a five-weight rod and you've got down there and you're throwing a, a 11 weight with tarpon, it's quite a bit of difference mm -hmm. uh, physically exactly. too, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's a lot of muscle work that, uh, you know. Yeah, a, a when, day... Go ahead, Charlie. Yeah, whenever you step up into to bigger rods, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12, um, you need to, before you do that, you need to pick up a dumbbell and start to do a little bit of curls so you could get a little <laughs> power behind those hands. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. 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 Um, mm -hmm. I'm going to ask the next question. Um, this is Geraldo from Boise, Idaho. And this is just to set up the idea of, you know, how fishing can be up and down anywhere. But he says three years ago mm -hmm. in May, his, he and his son fished for six days out of Punta Gorda. He said, we saw over 90 permit. That's great. He says, but only two responded yeah. to the fly. He said, we tried every mm -hmm. crab pattern in our boxes to no avail, but and also we saw no tarpon. Even the bone fishing was, for the most part, unproductive. The snook were extremely spooky. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they weren't having a very good <laughs> experience. Um, right. Uh, yeah, we, we fished both open water, rivers, and protected lagoons. Although there were daily squalls, the weather was not a significant factor. Could it be that permit are just too pressured at certain times and therefore too wary to pursue artificials? Um, what do you think in general, um, you know, uh, what was their kind of, Kind of lousy experience, I would say, due to. Uh, yeah, or would you have any I. Fixes? I uh, I do fish that area um, some. I'm not too fond of fishing the area because it's a small area, and uh, you are you are really fishing the same place over and over every day. Um, around May, June, those fish already start getting some pressure. But in May should be a very good month to fish generally. But if you have a hard southeast wind in that area, it's quite difficult to fish those flats because those flats are around those keys, basically. And if you go on the outside, you'll start to find some of these long, um, deeper flats. But permit is permit. Um, it all depends on 
what time you're out there and how long you want you're willing to stay out there i I have a belief in permit fishing is first thing on the water and last on the water and that could have been one of his problems uh, getting out there too late and leaving too early that could have been one of the problems because if you're not following the tides properly, you may end up on the tail, the end of a feeding tide for those permits. And when you meet them at the end of a feeding tide, that's how they behave. They, they, you will see them, but they, but they are already full. And uh, an artificial crab is not very appealing to them at that point. So, um, you know, that's when you need to stay out later on in the day and see if you can catch them on the, the next tide for that day that they probably would feed again. So um, staying close to the flats give you that advantage of, uh, of fishing the tides rather than fishing the clock, you know? Right, right. And I fish down in Punta Gorda and when I was there, all the uh, permit fishing was done from the boat on the flats, whereas all the permit yes, fishing yes. I did with you up by Placencia was all wading the flats. So it's a wholly different right. experience of uh, fishing for permit in both yes. places, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, mm -hmm. um, I, enjoyed, cool. I enjoyed wading the flats. I think it was more intimate, you know, and, um, yep. Yep. Uh, and more exciting and more mm -hmm. interesting in general when we were doing that yeah. so okay that's a, a very good answer and thank you for kind of clearing that up and of course you know it's okay. like um, permit are not the easiest fish to catch on a good day right <laughs> that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> that's for sure <laughs> so it's, it's something that um, you know they're a trophy for many reasons and uh, you got to work to get them that's for sure um, let's start talking about each of these fish and kind of run through them. Uh, we'll start with bonefish. We'll end up with permit. But um, where are the best places to fish for bonefish down there? I think you mentioned earlier, you know, around the Keys or something, right? Yeah. Um, if you're up in the north part of the, I would say, where, where it begins, where, where we would call southern Belize, you have um, Saltwater Key, which is a very um, big island on top of the reef. And on the lee side of that island have big schools of bonefish. They do get pressured from other lodges up in the north there. But there's a lot of bonefish there as well. And coming back further south, you, you can fish bonefish around a lot of these smaller keys heading south till you get down to Pompion, Rangwana, heading south to the Sapadillos. Because the Sapadillos, um, each one of those keys have, you know, schools of bonefish that lives around those keys. Okay. Um, you wouldn't find now, after 2001 hurricane, we had big flats out there um, around the Botnud Key area where Buttonwood, Gladden Key, you know, Jack Key and so on, they, they all had big sandy flats with big schools of bonefish up on the flats. But 
the hurricane in 2001 destroyed those flats. So most of these fish, they move around the Keys and a little further south. So that would be uh, a bonefish day. And also you can mix along with some permit fishing in the Sapadillos, uh, coming back up to the Ranguanas and so on and, and Pompeian, et cetera. So um, that would be a bonefish day down in the extreme south there, heading to the Gulf of Honduras, no? And um, and the bone fishing is mostly done waiting, right? Not from the boat. Or do um, you both? It's well, you can do both. In in some area, you you can wade, or you you have to wade in some areas, and but mostly you're fishing from the boat. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, and what flies generally work best for you for the bonefish? I had found, you know, basically for bonefish in this area is um, they call them bonefish bitters, you know, crazy charlies, um, some shrimp patterns, gotchas. Um, I tie a, a little fly they call a sea lice, which are proven to work very, very well on sandy flats. Um, and even some of the, the smaller like a, a small marking and a number six hook, there's times when those will work as well. So those are basically the crabs that, the, I mean the flies that we use for bonefish um, here. And are you primarily sight fishing for bonefish to a particular fish? Yes, sir. School or, uh, yeah, you're, you're sight fishing. In some area you're sight fishing. In some area you're, you're still sight fishing, I would say. But you're fishing to schools, which which is into about two or three feet, four feet of water, uh, mudding. You know, the further mm -hmm. south you go, you find you, you find that type of uh, fishery. You know. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, do the flies? Would you say? Uh, there's a question from AC Nelson in in Texas. He's wanting to know the best flies for permit bonefish, tarpon, and snook in uh, Punta Gorda area. But I'm just gonna because we're gonna talk about each of those fish. But did do, do the flies mm -hmm. change much that you use from up in Placencia, that area, down to Punta Gorda? Do you find you're using different flies um, or pretty much the same? Yeah, in in the Punta Gorda area. Um, you use uh, little heavier flies for the fact that you're fishing around some of these smaller keys down there. Your flat starts up against the mangrove and climb down to about four feet of water. And sometimes these fish, they would be coming up or going off, you know, the flats around those keys, and then you need a little heavier fly to, to get there and get enough sinkage that you could... Um, in the rock with them on the way down. Mm -hmm. um, up in our area, we use um, lighter flies for because we are fishing shallower flats, and um, you our tide is not very big, especially if you're fishing um, quarter moons. You uh, you you're not getting a, a big flooded tide like you get on the new moon and the full moon. So. Those are where your guide come in to make those adjustments of what you need to, to be fishing with uh, at that time. So um, that's to take into consideration, no? Okay. Um, 
I'm going to come back to the moon phases here in a minute because we did get a question on the internet about that. So, but I want to kind uh -huh. of finish up with the, the flies and bonefish here. Uh, Ed uh, in Chico, California, he, he says, my wife and I hope to visit Southern Belize in the near future. So thank you for taking time to be on this excellent show. He says, do you recommend weed guards for bonefish and tarpon flies? And if yes, what type of weed guard, uh, i.e. monofilament post, two posts versus one, uh, what do you use? He says, please elaborate. Yeah. Um, if a tarpon, um, not necessarily you need a weed guard because you're fishing mostly, um, you're sight fishing for them, and it's basically sand bottom, or you're not fishing your fly on the bottom, generally. You're getting your fly um, to the tarpon, to that fish, and you're stripping your fly most of the time because tarpon will go after a moving object or a moving fly or a moving bait, um, not one that is sitting at the bottom. So you don't really necessarily need um, a weed guard for those. For bonefish, similar. You don't really need a weed guard for bonefish unless they are feeding up on heavy coral flats. But most of the time you will find your bonefish on turtle grass flats, sandy flats, on the lee side of the island, or a sandy flat out in the open. Um, on permit now, I would use um, double, one weed guard on each side of your hook, of your, the tip of your hook, the point of your hook, and basically mono, a stiff mono. So you, you get that fly, um, even if it turns over, it's not hooking up on the coral and mess up a good shot that, that probably will get a permit to take, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay. 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 Uh, what um, what weight rod do you suggest for for the bonefish? Um, a seven or an eight. Those seven or eight are okay. pretty standard, yeah. Mm -hmm. And you only need floating line for the bonefish, right? That's correct. That's correct. Mm -hmm. And what do you think are the best ways to present your fly to the bonefish? Um, if you're fishing. In a school of bonefish, it really doesn't matter. It's, it's just about getting the fly to that school and let it sink down to where they're feeding, you know, where they're mudding, and make little strips and let it imitate uh, a sea lice or a crab, you know, bouncing on the bottom trying to find a way to get away from them. So um, it's not a big deal about stripping for them. The, the big deal is using the right and tippet, the right size of tippet, if you're fishing very clear water, you need to go the way down to probably six or eight pound test um, on your tippet because uh, in clear water they're very leader shy. So um, if you have a bonefish following your fly and you, you're seeing it following your fly and you're stripping, stripping and he's following, immediately you change the strip. Stop the fly and change the strip, and that way you will get them to take. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Good. Good tips. Let's talk uh, about. Um, well, let me let me jump on that moon phase thing because that affects all the fish. Uh, Fran in yeah. uh, in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, wrote in here on the internet. She said, uh, "Well, I don't know if it's he or she." 
So uh, they said, uh, can you explain the moon phases and its effects on tides and how the, that affects fishing success? What moon phase phases are potentially the best? Okay. It, I will go into it in detail why you choose different moon phase um, for certain trips that you will go on, on a fishing trip, especially for permit. Uh, we're looking at at this point. Um, if you you're going to a permit area like Southern Belize for three days fishing for permit, um, I would choose closer to the new moon tide because you will get very good tide in the in the morning and you will get a little bit of tide again in the afternoon, late afternoon. Now, if you're going to come and spend a six-day fishing you know, four, five, or six-day fishing, you want to come closer to the first quarter moon. The reason for that first quarter moon, you get an early tide, which I recommend that you be in the water early as possible, and be in the water as late as possible. So that new moon, that first quarter tide, first quarter moon, will give you two tides a day to fish. So if you start your fishing trip three days before that first quarter moon. You will be fishing into that moon phase going into a very, very long and good afternoon tide that takes you all the way up to the evening, and then you will get a small tide in the morning, which to me um, permit feeds better early morning and late evening. But if you don't have a good tide, they can't get up on the flat, and if the visibility is bad, you still can't see them when they're off the flat. When you see them, you're pretty much on top of them. So if you fish early morning on a rising tide or a flood tide, a high tide, you can see them tailing. They're up on the flat at that time. One of the reasons why the permit, they would love the early tide, because they can see their crustacean food, their crabs, their shrimp, and so on, much better than they can during from, say, 10, 11 o'clock until 3 o'clock during the middle of the day. Because in the middle of the day, uh, with the visibility, high visibility, the crustaceans, they're way up and hiding. And I have seen permit that time of the day just trying to turn over small rocks, coral heads on, on the flat, trying to get those crabs that is underneath those coral to, to have a meal. While late in the evening and early morning, um, say until 9, 10 o'clock, these crabs are more visible. They're out, and they, they're, they're better um, timing for the permit to feed. So if you are on a longer trip, it's better you come between the, the new moon and the first quarter moon. If you can't reach those phases right there, you still can come after the full moon, uh, between the full moon and the last quarter moon, it gives you exactly the same opportunity as you would get on the first quarter moon. Got it? Got it. Okay. And folks, you know, uh, my experience fishing with Charlie is um, 
he does things a lot differently, and he fishes, like he says, the tides rather than the clock. A lot of times you'll go down to uh, and fish with guides down there, and they want to start at 9 in the morning and finish at 3. doesn't matter when the tides are happening. That's just their going to work time. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. when Charlie and I fished, he says, okay, Roger, you want to fish for tarpon? I'll meet you uh, for coffee at 4 in the morning. <laughs> and we meet for coffee, and we do a 10-minute boat ride, and, and we were in tons of tarpon that we're all feeding. And it was all over in an hour. And then we're running out to a pancake flat because the tide's starting to come up, you know, on the pancake flat for permits. So you got to, you know, if you're mm -hmm. game for everything, there's something to do. But then there are certain times when when Charlie would just tell me, okay, time to sit down and just have a drink and rest <laughs> because nothing's <Yeah>. happening, <laughs> you know. And there's yeah. no sense of whipping the water yeah. for no good reason. So. Um, it, yeah. It's a different mm -hmm. experience. It, it's really something that you need to look into, you know, if you're if you're mm -hmm. going down there to fish. But um, well, let's talk about snook real quick because if the weather's bad, there's always a chance to go inland and, and fish. Oh yeah, if you say you're fishing from Placencia, uh, you're staying at a hotel in Placencia and you can't get out due to heavy wind or whatever the case is. Um, you got that entire lagoon. Um, on the west side of Placenza, which fish is good for snook, and, you know, barracuda, jacks, etc. And you can make a run all the way down to Monkey River and fish that whole area as well. Um, but again, the way I fish the lagoon, I, I try to get out very early um, and get my guests back to the hotel, 9, 10 o'clock, so they can have a brunch take a break, and I pick them up again at 3 in the afternoon and fish them till dark because snook fishing is early morning and late evening. In the middle of the day, um, you're soaking a line and beating the water. Um, when we're fishing uh, for snook, you're primarily, you know, in the lagoon, you're fishing up against the mangroves, right? That's correct, uh-huh. And um, you're fishing. What, what blade rod to use and what kind of flies do you use for, for snook? Okay. Um, I would fish for snook with a 10 or 11 weight. I, I would choose a 10 because it's easier casting. Um, for the reason if you hook a good snook on the, right on the bank of the, a creek or, you know, close to the, to the mangrove, you got to muscle in some to get them from taking you back into the mangrove. So that's why I would recommend a bigger rod, you know, a 10 weight at least, you know. And and the flies that you want to use basically are, you know, closer minnows work best or works good, um, you know, with, you know, chartreuse and white with, a, with your dumbbell eye um, that give you a little sinkage. You do need floating line because you're not fishing very deep. You want to get your fly up against the bank and let it let it run off that edge all the way down to deeper water because as the closer you get to the mangrove, the shallower it is. And if you cast into the mangrove, you let that fly sit a little bit and trickle down and you, you, you move it, you strip it, slowly coming back, you know, with jerky little strips because sometimes they're right tight up against that mangrove and they don't see you fly uh, because you're taking it back out too fast. 
or too quick. So you leave it there a little bit and strip it back, you know, load up, you go again, etc. I like to fish with, you know, the Clouser, the Sedbusser, you know, uh, the Puglisi, the black and white Puglisi works very well. Um, lefty Deceiver, you know, cockroaches um, fly in a, in that region. Tarpon Toad works works very good for snook along the banks as well. And you you fishing for snook, there's always a chance you will get a tarpon as well. Mm, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, back in the in the lagoon area there. Yeah. Now and and right, fishing for. Right. Fishing for snook is primarily um, uh, just um, blind casting into the to the, the the mangroves, right? There's no real sight casting for for snook for the most part. No, is there? no. Unless sometimes I go all the way up in the lagoon where the water is much clearer, you have more sandy bottom, and they have uh, they have some creek up there that the entrance of them are pretty clear water and sandy bottom. Uh, you can see the fish then along along that line, and you could cast directly to them. But that's only that area that I find find it like that. You know, the rest of the lagoon is basically probing. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's talk about um, tarpon. So the best, and you've got different areas for tarpon and. Uh, from from what you've shown me personally, it's much different than fishing for tarpon, for instance, on out of Key West, Florida, um, yeah. where mm-hmm. you're looking for cruising tarpon and so forth. So, what are the the best areas to find the tarpon? Where do you look for them? And uh, then we can talk about how we fish for them. Okay, um, in March we start getting the migratory tarpon from coming from south heading north. And when these tarpon, they start entering the reef and the keys, they're looking for food. And the the general food for them is basically those glass minnows. And they, where, where any one of those keys that have a lagoon in the middle that is loaded with glass minnows, you will, be, you will start to find these tarpon in there. Um, before they hit the lagoon, sometimes you'll find them on these long flats with deep water. Uh, well, most of those are deep water along the edges of them that have a lot of these glass minnows. And um, those are the areas, basically, you, you start to look for them March, April, May. Um, then you have the channels up in, like, Tobacco Key, where big schools of big fish would go in there. You know, like May, June, July, you will go up there and fish those channels. But the bigger fish will stay up there, but the smaller fish will continue, um, keep going. They start finding them up in Kikaka, San Pedro, you know, that type of stuff, which would be fish from 15 to like 50 pounds. That's kind of the normal, basically the smaller fish that, that will stay around. So... Um, Tarpon Key Lagoon was one of the better lagoons for until the dredge part of it that kind of messed it up. So the, the algae had that the bait fish to feed on, which is the grass minnow would feed, and those algae in there had taken a toll, and they moved over to Little Lagoon, Big Lagoon, Peter Douglas, and all of those keys are intact with them. Um, with food for the bait fish, so that's where you'll find most of the tarpon. 
and you can um, you might find yourself fishing for tarpon sight fishing or blind casting either or right either or yeah I um on the southern end the southern end of tarpon key we used to sight fish for them um, the rendezvous key is another nice place to sight fish for them when there's a lot of bait um, glass minnows around there it's kind of sandy bottom um, Lagoon Key have a deep lagoon in there, but when they are congregated in there, uh, among you know the millions of bait fish that is in there, it's like almost fishing in a tub. You know, you well you experienced that, <laughs> yeah. um, Roger, that you kind of you kind of cast out and and let that gummy minnow trickle to the bottom, your line tighten out, and, and and that's it. So heading a little further north, like um, you know. Um, Peter Douglas Island, they have like three lagoons there. You have one that you that you know the the water is really dark, and the other two is is really clear water. So um, those lagoons, I sight fish for them. Okay, um, and and we also uh, can fish for the tarpon in uh, the rivers or near the mouths of the rivers, like Monkey River, right? And also south oh, yes. by uh, During... the Gorda. Oh yes, during the during the dry season that begins in March, um, also these migratory tarpon will hit those rivers and lagoons, and and you know they, when the spawning time comes around, they stay right in those rivers. Um, Monkey River is a good place. The same Placenta Lagoon here is a good place, and um, there's there's lots of other creeks and lagoons on the way to Monkey River, and also. And north of uh, Placenta here, you have a stretch of about 15 miles of uh, lagoon, that uh, and there's smaller lagoons that branch off into the big lagoon, and and it's it's in it's have incredible fishery in that area. Yeah. For tarpon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to jump back into uh, leaders and some stuff here on tarpon mm -hmm. uh, and flies, but uh, we did get a couple questions on the internet I wanted to address because. Uh, the, these are kind of general questions. Um, one from Daniel. Uh, he's in Orange Walk Town, um, so he knows. He probably knows the answer to this, but this is a good question. Mm -hmm. He says, a lot of people may not know this. Um, are these fish endangered in Belize, and what are the laws that protect them in Belize? Well, looking at tarpon itself, I wouldn't say tarpon is endangered in Belize. Um, I would say the resident tarpon are in danger in Belize because of the the constant um, netting of uh, you know small lagoons where they where they are you know multiplying and um, landlocked areas that they are catching them out etc and rivers. But the migratory tarpon when they come uh, and I can assure you this, um, Roger year before last, not last year, because last year we call that COVID year, but year before last, we were fishing Tarpon, Lagoon Key, and Tarpon Key, Peter Douglas, and there was so much Tarpon. At one time, there was five both of us in there um, at one time, and everybody hooking up. Yeah. And and those are the migratory fish because you, you know them. The, the backs of them are, are have a light turquoise green because they, they've been traveling most of the time. 
Now, they, I would say the resident tarpon, they're endangered because uh, people are still eating them. You know, they, 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 they are protected. And now, like all the, the gill nets are being banded in the country, um, I have a great feeling about that, that the, the fishery is going to, and tarpon will get back um, on its good foot in the rivers and lagoons, etc. Um, so those are the tarpon that is endangered, in my view. Yeah, but the, in general, um, bonefish, tarpon, and permit are all protected fish in Belize. It's only snook that's yes, still not protected, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, we we've been trying we've been trying for snook because snook is a is definitely a good sport fish, and um, it's been for a long time a, a great sport fish. But um, somehow, you know, we got so much opposition on snook because it's such a great eating fish, you know. Right. So, right. Um, we are still trying. We we ain't gonna stop on that one because that's the super slam right there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a question mm -hmm. came in from Donna Witchers in Hamilton. I don't know where Hamilton is, but uh, she's asking mm -hmm. about how many rods should you bring and so forth. And just for the sake of time, Donna, I'm going to refer you to Charlie's website. Go to charlielesleyflyfishing.com. Again, charlielesleyflyfishing.com. Charlie's laid out all the, the gear requirements there that, that will, will spell it all out for you, flies, rods, lines, everything there. So that's better than what we can probably do here. Uh, online. So mm -hmm. um, the um, uh, Ed uh, in Chico, California, again, has a couple of questions. He, he's asking about the gummy minnow. He says, what type of leader do you prefer when you're using the gummy middle, minnow, especially fishing size six? Um, is it a typical tarpon leader with a heavy bite or shock tippet or something finer? Uh, what do you use? Okay, fishing a gummy minnow. Uh, basically, um, for tarpon, um, you need that bite guard. You need that shock tippet there. Um, not less than 40 pounds for the range of um, the size of tarpon that we have between the 15 to 50 pound fish. Um, normally, what I would do, I would have uh, a butt section of about 50 pound test for about three feet, and then I would use a unit knot double unit to tie in uh, about another four feet of um, 40 pound test and then I would put my bite guard to about a 50 again uh, but you need good hard mono for that bite guard and you need to have them have it straight you, you can't have uh, a wiggly wormy looking type of leader because that's how the, the fly would, would would present itself. That's how the fly would act if you when you retrieve. Um, that's kind of the rig that I would use, you know, up to a 10, 11 foot leader for tarpon. Okay. Um, Ed mm -hmm. also asked a question about the gummy minnow itself. He says, to my knowledge, commercially tied gummy minnows are uh, use a Tiemco 811S hooks. Are these hooks strong enough when fishing size six gummies, or uh, should I try tying my own gummies on hooks with that are thicker, stronger wire? Um, if if he has the if he has the equipment um, to tie one, um, I would go with a little stronger hook. Um, the the Tiemco hook is is a very good hook. 
I recommend on, on the government minnow, a number two hook um, that is not that doesn't have a wide gap. The reason for that is a hook with a number two hook, one, one out, whatever, and with a wide gap, it affects the the way the the gummy minnow would would act when you strip it underneath the water. It doesn't look real. Now, mm. fishing a gummy minnow, basically you are trying to imitate what they call an injured minnow among a school of, of minnow. So you could attract the tarpon, and basically tarpon would go for the injured minnow before they go after a, a swimming minnow. So if you retrieve that minnow, it just swims straight. It doesn't flash. It doesn't flip from side to side and flashes to attract the fish. So you, your chances of getting a hookup is, is a lot less if you use a bigger hook or a wider gap hook. I, I would stay with my number two hook uh, um, mm -hmm. on, on a gummy minnow. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, Ed also asked, do you ever use gurglers or any surface-type flies for tarpon? Well, um, the gurglers, they, they would work if you have a frenzy. If you okay. see them, if the minnows, they're up on top on the tarpon, they're, they're going after them. It's quite okay to use a gurgler to see if they would take it then, or a papa would work on that point, or a, a tarpon toad, you know, a chartreuse and white tarpon mm -hmm. toad works well like that as well, or or a chartreuse and white puglisi would, would also do the job. Okay, okay. Um, mm -hmm. um, okay, done with tarpon. We're going to go into permit here. I'm just going to throw this one question in that just came in um, uh, from Ed in Damascus, uh, mm -hmm. or Damascus. Damascus, I, I don't know. Anyway, uh, he says, <laughs> Belize has an exceptional jack and cuda population, and I know about that too. Um, super hard fighting fish, why aren't they promoted by guides? Um, the reason for that, because I think they're, they're seasonal, you know. Um, you, you would start to find more school of jacks coming up these channels. Um, you know, basically April, May, June, up to July. Um, when the rain starts in June, July, some of these creeks and rivers that you will find them, you know, they get too brackish, the water gets um, flooded, and they disappear. Now, I can tell you that in the months of April, May, and June, you find big schools of these channels like on the Victoria Channel, big schools, I'm talking about hundreds of them. And uh, we would take that as a side dish coming back from a permit day fishing. <laughs> and you, and right. you, see, you, know what I, you know what I mean? And you see a, a flock of birds just going around in circles. You go there and, and, and they're pretty much on top of the water going after the bait fish because when, when these schools of, of jacks that push the bait up to the top of the water, that's when the bird they come down and they start feeding as well. So it's a big old frenzy, and you know you cast a, a, a deceiver or one of these big puglises in there and, and bingo. So yeah. um, that's really uh, when you know you get the, the bonitos and all of that, you know, schooling up in the area as well. 
Yeah. But it's not something that we promote. We just use it as a as a, as a side dish, you know. Yeah. Barracuda, when when other things, mm. yeah. When other things aren't happening, then that's a fun thing to do. Yeah. Okay. Right. Let's. Exactly. Uh, let, yeah. And we're going to run long tonight, folks. But uh, we're going to talk about pyramid. It's just because Charlie's providing. He's just a wealth of information, and I want to suck it all out of him here. So. <laughs> so uh, let's talk about permit, which is what he likes to talk about best. And um, so, uh, I mean, Placentia area is known for good permit fishing, especially on the flats. And, um, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, at least when I went with you, we were always waiting for permit. Um, do you ever fish for permit from a boat, or is it, is, do you always wait for them in, in your um, area? There is... Yeah, there is certain there's some flats um, that you that you fish from the boat. Okay. Um, I would start off a flat um, from the boat. I would, uh, as you know, you you get your angler ready, let him have his um, artillery in his hand, um, ready to go if you approach a flat and there's a permit right there when you approach a flat. That happens a lot of times and the, the angler would be scrambling for his rod, da, 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 and you always press that in, that, you know, when you're approaching the flat, you you get your gear out. Um, your question is, uh, uh, what's your question again, Roger? About, you know, whether you're you're fishing from a boat or, or waiting, so. Um, yeah, so you, depends, yeah, on, you... depends on, on what flat you're on. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, what's a good size permit? A good size permit is 10 pound plus. Um, 10 pound plus? To me, okay. yeah, to me, from the day a permit is born, it's a permit. <laughs> but yeah. um, <laughs> I, I always like to fish for that um, size of permit because, the, you know, a 10 pound permit, you will feel like it's about a 15 pounder. Yeah. Um, yeah, the that size of permit, you know, I would say three to ten pound. The, the school fish, the the school a lot, and um, they feed hard when they when you get them on, on a good feeding tide. Um, the bigger fish is definitely more pickier. You got to be on target with them, etc. You know. Right. Right. Well, every everyone I see in a picture, it doesn't matter how big the permit is, they're always smiling, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> they got a permit. Yeah, I mean that's that's right. Big... And oh yeah, and to add the permit, I mean it's it's one of the most well-behaved fish when you land them, when you put them in the in the net or you put them in the boat, you tail them and put them in the boat. They're just well-behaved. They're not kicking <laughs> okay. around like a tarpon, or <laughs> you, you know. I don't know if you noticed that with them, but they are—they are very mannerly fish, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm. Terry Horn in Auburn, Alabama. Um, he says, uh, "Well, he was asking about weed guard. You already talked about weed guards on the coral. Um, yeah. Uh, but he also asked, uh, do you prefer synthetic material for the crab bodies, like EP fibers or traditional wool yarn?" I would go with the traditional yarn. I think okay. I, I think the, the the it makes your fly look more real. You know, the movement of that fly sinking to the bottom um, is 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 a much better to tie with the yarn. Mm -hmm. Okay, and um, and for permit, you're primarily sight fishing, right? 
or always sight fishing? Always sight fishing. Always sight fishing. You don't cast until you see a permit. Okay. What uh, what size rod uh, and what kind of line are you using? I, well, I, I would recommend a nine a nine weight. You know, good good fast tip rod, a nine weight. Okay. Um, there are some guys who would bring a 10 for backup, and they would also use that 10 for tarpon fishing, which is it's not bad, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Terry also asked, he says, um, have you had more takes when you cast to the fish and just let the fly sink than do nothing, or when you are stripping it back? My first trip for permit is coming up in April, and I'm keen to read your replies. Okay, a very good question, Roger, and there's several answers to that. Um, if, you, if you're waiting or you're on the boat fishing, fishing from the boat, um, if there's a school of permit approaching, these are the smaller fish that, that have, always have a leader. Most of the time they have a leader in that school. And that leading fish kind of steer the course of, of that school of fish. The best thing to do then um, is to get your cast your fly in front of that school and let it sink to the bottom. Let it go right to the bottom, but you have a little tension, just a slight tension on your line. If in case the lead fish would pick it up, but that's very seldom that will happen. So you wait till that lead fish or two pa- passes more or less past your fly then you start to strip, uh, make a couple of little short, jerky strips. Let it look like a, a shrimp or a crab getting away, going into defense or looking for a place to hide. And that way you will get them with that um, type of stripping. Now, if you are fishing to a moving school of fish off the edge, say you scoop, you spook a school of fish off the flat, and they go out after the drop off more or less, and you can still see them. Quite likely, you can cast out, let the fly. Well, you, you lead them about ten feet. Let the fly sink a little bit, and then you make a couple of long strips, couple of long strips, and pause in between the long strips, because these fish sometimes, when they off those edge like that, they're looking, they're looking up for fleeing crabs. You know, for crabs trying to to get to a to a drift of uh, uh, sargassum grass or trying to get back there and they get aggressive, they go up and they suck it in. So there's so many ways to catch a permit and there's so many ways you have to adapt and keep trying at, at every angle that you, you have to do that. Now, if you're fishing for bigger fish in little deeper water on turtle grass beds, um, if you can get that fly on their dinner plate. That's where you're going to leave that fly. Because he is a very slow feeding, almost motionless fish, just turning on his side. If he sees a prey, he kind of suck that in. And sometimes they just suck it in and stay right there. So you will have to have your line hand ready for the set. And a lot of times you don't feel them. Most of the time you don't feel them. So you you make a short set 
if you see that fish tip down, it's not necessarily that fish is going for your fly. It's probably going for another crab that he sees before he sees your fly. So you make a short jerky strip and pause. And if you make that short jerky strip, it could be the same time that you have that permit on or he already got your fly. But if he didn't, your fly is still there on his dinner plate and he will get more aggressive, think it's a crab fleeing away from him from where he was digging and go right after you, your fly and inhale it and that's when you can really nail them. Yeah, now Steve Bourne in Madison, Wisconsin. Now, Steve was on my show um, uh, in the past as a guest as well. Um, he's writing, and maybe we can kind of expand on this, because this is, a, like he says, there's a lot of controversy about when and how to set the hook on permit. He says, do you strike when you mm -hmm. see the fish dip down and the tail sticks up, or wait until you feel the fish on a slow strip strike? Some experts say that when you see, see the fish tailing near your fly, he's already eaten it. So, um, um, Roger, not 100% on that. Yeah. Um, as I explained that you cast your fly out there to the fish. Let's look at it this way. And that fish was already there before you get your fly there. The reason why that fish is there, because that fish is after a crab that is in that area. That's why he's there. And he is not moving, he's not swimming, he's not spook, he's not running away. So that's that's one of his restaurants right there. He stops because he always finds his food there. So your fly, when you cast it in there, is just an additional um, crab or shrimp to what is already down there. So if you see that fish tip up after your fly went down into the dinner plate, that fish necessarily does not inhale the fly when he tips down. He's probably going after another crab that he sees there before your fly get there. So once he tips down, you make uh, just one little strip, boop, you know, a little jerky strip, and if he have your fly, you you will get a hook set because their mouth is very rubbery, and you will get a hook set if you have the fly. But if you if he didn't have your fly and he taken he took another um, crab that is there, he will then see your fly like a fleeing crab getting away from him, and that's when they get a little more aggressive and go after that as well because that that could be a dessert for them, you know, in, mm -hmm. in that manner. That's when you could get them nail them pretty good. So um, I have seen where they inhale your fly, they crush it, break your hook, and go in after another crab in that same area. And when you set, you don't have anything on because they are ready to <laughs> get, get your fly down into the crusher and break your hook if they catch that hook dead center. They break that hook right in two. Um, really? And wow. from experience, I see we we fish, we hook one permit out of a school, and the permit got off, and the school spooked off the flat, and we, we, we walk, you know, another 
eight or ten yards, and there it came right back up again. Put the fly there, and another one take it, and we missed that one too. And when we looked, we only had a fly on and no hook. The hook was broken from the first one. So uh. all these things come into combination. All these factors have to be taken um, into consideration when you're fishing for permit. You know, basically, every flat, every flat you move from one to the other, check your leader because it could be frayed and it could cause you to lose a good fish. You know, you got to keep changing flies, you know, from one flat to the other. Um, it is noted for some pattern, uh, crab pattern works best, but there are some days they don't want that, and there are some flats they don't want that pattern either. So um, I, I believe in five, six, seven, eight different patterns, you know, to, to have, you know, with you all the time. Yeah, I remember when, when I was, you and I were fishing, and, um, you know, we were talking about the color of the patterns, you know, and I'm asking you, well, what, mm -hmm. what color is better or not? And we were picking up rocks on the flat and looking at the crabs, and literally every mm -hmm. crab on that flat was a different color. I mean, some That's were right. pale green, That's some exactly. were dark green. That's exactly some were right. Mm -hmm. So it's, yep. color isn't probably a big deal, I wouldn't think, to the permit as much as that presentation, right? Right. The, the, get your fly there when they're feeding. And, um, you know, one one great factor is, is I've seen this, you know, make, you make a perfect cast and get your fly right there without spooking that fish. But you make a long strip and bring your fly back off that fish about two feet or three feet. And he's not looking up. He's looking down. So if you strip back about three, four feet and think that that permit will follow your fly or chase your fly, you're mistaken. You've got to keep your fly in there with just a little movement at first. Let the fly get down to the eye level of that fish so that fish can see your fly and, and go after your fly. If you see you're like a foot away from that fish and you, you put your fly there, you make your cast perfect, and your, your fly is trickling down with a trickling down um, looks of a crab trickling down looking for a hiding place and you see that permit move from where he is towards your fly, that permit is yours. Don't let the fly go right down to the bottom. Let him follow the fly down. Keep just a little tension on that line. And when he picks it up, if your line hand is in a perfect position holding the line, you can feel that little nibble. It's totally, totally different from if you hook a coral, you, you mm -hmm. flies into a coral. You feel a little nibble like, like, like a little rat, you know, just touching a line rapidly. And that's supposed to trigger the adrenaline and you're supposed to set like boom right away. So if I tell you to set by the time that register in your brain and get to your hand, it's too late, you know? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You wind you're winding That's... me up now because I love to fish for permit. <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately we have to uh call it quits here because uh we're you know, we really <laughs> okay. pass time on uh on, on when we normally yeah. stop. But um and I noticed there's questions coming in. Um uh I Adam is asking about fishing at Coco 
Plum Key. Uh, there, there's other mm. questions that are still coming in, um, which is great. Uh, and what I'd say yeah. is, uh, you know, contact us through um, uh, Charlie's website. Charlie would be happy to answer your questions uh, more specifically. Uh, and uh, since we can't get to all of these tonight, uh, but um, uh, check in with us on charlieleslieflyfishing.com and um, we'll try to get your questions answered through, through the website there as well. So with that said, uh, Charlie, hang with me a bit longer here. We're not quite done with the sure. show, but I want you to um, stick with me a few more minutes. We are going to give away a one-year membership to the Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. And then we'll also be giving away a book of your choice from Stackhold Books. I have a list of books I have available, and the winner will be able to choose from those from that list. Mm -hmm. So stick with us. We'll be right back, and we'll do just that. Reeling and Healing Midwest is a nonprofit organization that champions fly fishing retreats for women surviving and battling all types of cancer. Their mission is to introduce women to the healing powers of the sport of fly fishing and provide a one-of-a-kind experience on and off the water. This is accomplished through the elements of fly fishing, positive camaraderie, peer coaching, uh, nature, and support network, which in turn renews the spirit and hope of each participant. Reeling and Healing Midwest is in need of trout flies, waders, leaders, fishing equipment, and other items. To view their current wish list and to learn how you can support their retreats, visit fishon.org. That's fishon.org, or call them at 616-855-4017 at 616-855-4017. And just a quick reminder, everybody, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You'll find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what did you think of the show? Just click on that link and leave your comments, and we'd really appreciate it. So now it's time to give away a few prizes. The winners uh, for our drawings are randomly selected from our show's registration database. If you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for the next show so you don't miss out on a chance to win one of these great prizes. If you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show to provide you with information on how to receive your prize. So the first thing we're giving away is a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. To learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org flyfishersinternational.org, and you can learn all about them there. It's a great organization to support. They're in heavily into conservation efforts, uh, both in uh, freshwater and saltwater, so check them out. And let me uh, hit my database here, and looks like A.C. Nelson in Texas, uh, who asked a question earlier in the show. So, A.C., uh, congratulations. You've got yourself a membership to FFI, and uh, I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Now we'll give away a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, which you can learn more about at amatobooks.com. They have lots of books and periodicals on fly fishing, so check them out. Uh, and our winner for that is Ed Walzer, Ed Walzer in Oregon. So congratulations, Ed. I'm sure you'll enjoy your subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. Now um, I'm going to clear my queue. I'm going to ask a question about something that Charlie and I have talked about tonight. Um, and let me, okay, so now i got my queue. So let's, um, let's see here. When we were... We've been talking about flats quite a bit. And um, what is the name of the flats that we were talking about that you'd find kind of out in the middle of blue water? What was the name that Charlie called those flats? 
and that's where we spend a lot of time looking for permit. So a lot of times fishing, huh, Charlie? Not always catching. <laughs> Let's see here. Okay. Nope. Uh, not Turnif. Yeah, uh, John in Fort Collins, you got it, uh, Pancake Flat. So um, you have won yourself a book courtesy of Stackpole Books. And I have your email here, so that's all I need. I will send you an uh, email with a list of books, and you can pick from the, that list, and uh, you'll be all set. Charlie, are you still with me? Okay, we probably lost Charlie. But uh, I'm just happy that we've had him for the, the whole show in the first place, considering the connection from Belize. Um, so I really appreciate Charlie being on the show tonight. And uh, hopefully uh, all of you have found our podcast archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link on the top line menu, and you can uh, go through the archive and find all our past shows. I think it's 300, this will make 331, which um, you can search by keyword, keyword phrase, that kind of thing ton of information uh, at that time. So, yeah, and I just got a message uh, from on WhatsApp. Charlie uh, lost his signal. So, anyway, great having him on tonight. I hope you all enjoyed it. Our next broadcast will be February 17th, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And that's where I'm going to interview Skip Morris. We've got Skip on several times on the show. And we'll be talking about 500 trout streams. Um, what happens when a man who's fished, fly fished for over 50 years, who's graduated with a university degree in English, who's published 19 print and paper books on fly fishing topics with three publishers, decides to spend three years writing his first book of essays about his beloved sport? <laughs> you, you can imagine. So anyway, join us to learn how Skip came to write his latest book, 500 Trout Streams, and hear a few stories uh, out of his book. So join us for that show. Uh, we'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Douglas Outdoors for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.